Chapter 16, Part 1 of The Life of Clara Barton, Volume 1 by William Barton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 16, The Attempt to Recapture Fort Sumter. I am confounded, literally speechless with amazement. When I left Washington, everyone said it boded no peace. It was a bad omen for me to start. I never missed finding the trouble I went to find, and was never late. I thought little of it. This p.m. we neared the dock at Hilton Head, and the boat came alongside and boarded us instantly. The first word was, The first gun is to be fired upon Charleston this p.m. at three o'clock. We drew out watches, and the hands pointed three to the minute. I felt as if I should sink through the deck. I am no fatalist, but it is so singular. Thus wrote Clara Barton in her journal on Tuesday night, April 7th, 1863, the night of her arrival at Port Royal. She had become so expert and learning where there was to be a battle, that her friends looked upon her as a kind of stormy petrel, and expected trouble as soon as she arrived. She had come to Hilton Head in order to be on hand when the bombardment of Charleston should occur, and the opening guns of the bombardment were her salute as her boat, the Orogo, warped up to the dock. Everything seemed to indicate that she had come at the very moment when she was needed. But the following Saturday, the transports which had loaded recruits at Hilton Head, ready to land and capture Charleston as soon as the guns had done their work, returned to Hilton Head and brought the soldiers back. Her diary that morning recorded that the Orogo returning would stop off at Charleston for dispatches, but her entry that night said, In the p.m., much to the consternation of everybody, the transports laden with troops all hove in sight. Soon the harbor was literally filled with ships and boats the wharf crowded with disembarking troops with the camp equipage they had taken with them what had they returned for was the question hanging on every lip conjecture was rife all sorts of rumors were afloat but the one general idea seemed to prevail that the expedition had fizzled if anyone knows the precise meaning and import of that term. Troops landed all the evening and perhaps all night and returned to the old camping grounds. The place is alive with soldiers. No one knows why he is here or why he is not there. All seem disappointed and chagrined, but no one is to blame. For my part, I am rather pleased at the turn it has taken, as I thought from the first that we had too few troops to fight and too many to be killed. I have seen worse retreats if this be one. 
Fizzled appears to have been a new word, but the country had abundant opportunity to learn its essential meaning. The expedition against Charleston was one of several that met this inglorious end, and the flag was not raised over Sumter until 1865. Now followed an interesting chapter in Clara Barton's career, but one quite different from anything she had expected when she came to Hilton Head. After the fizzle in early April, the army settled down to general inactivity. Charleston must be attacked simultaneously by land and sea and reduced by heavy artillery fire before the infantry could do anything. There was nothing for Clara Barton to do but to wait for the battle which had been postponed but was surely coming. She distributed her perishable supplies where they would do the most good and looked after the comfort of such soldiers as needed her immediate ministration. But the wounded were few in number and the sick were in well-established hospitals where she had no occasion to offer her services. Moreover, she found the situation here very different from what she had seen only a few miles from Washington. There were no muddy roads between Hilton Head and New York Harbor. The Orogo was a shuttle moving back and forward every few days, and in time another boat was added. There was a regular mail service between New York and Hilton Head, and every boat took officers and soldiers going upon or returning from furloughs, and the boats from New York brought nurses and supplies. The Sanitary Commission had its own depot of supplies and a liberal fund of money from which purchases could be made of fruits and such other local delicacies as were procurable. It is true as Miss Barton was afterward to learn, that the hospital management left something to be desired, and that fewer delicacies were purchased than could have been. But that was distinctly not her responsibility, nor did she for one moment assume it to be such. She came into conflict with official red tape quite soon enough in her own department, without intruding where she did not belong. She settled down to await the time when she should be needed for the special work that had brought her to Hilton Head. That time came, but it did not come soon, and its delay was the occasion of very mixed emotions on her part. Clara Barton came to Hilton Head with a reputation already established. She no longer needed to be introduced, nor was there any difficulty in her procuring passes to go where she pleased, excepting as she was sometimes refused out of consideration for her own personal safety. But not once, while she was in Carolina, was she asked to show her passes. When she landed, she found provision made for her at regimental headquarters. Colonel J. G. Elwell of Cleveland, to whom she reported, was laid up at this time with a broken leg. 
She had him for a patient, and his gratitude continued through all the subsequent years. Her journal described him as a noble Christian gentleman, and she found abundant occasion to admire his manliness, his Christian character, his affection for his wife and children, his courtesy to her, and later his heroism as she witnessed it upon the battlefield. The custody of her supplies brought her into constant relations with the chief quartermaster, Captain Samuel T. Lamb, for whom she cherished a regard almost if not quite as high as that she felt for Colonel, afterward General Elwell. Her room was at headquarters, under the same roof with these and other brave officers, who vied with each other in bestowing honors and kindnesses upon her. As Colonel Elwell was incapacitated for service, she saw him daily, and the care of her supplies gave her scarcely less constant association with Captain Lamb. General Hunter called upon her, paid her high compliments, issued her passes and permits, and offered her every possible courtesy. Her request that her cousin, Corporal Leander Poor, be transferred to the department over which her brother David presided, met an immediate response. The nurses from the hospital paid her an official call, and apparently spoke very gracious words to her, for she indicates that she was pleased with something they said or did. Different officers sent her bouquets. Her table and her window must have been rather constantly filled with flowers. More than once the band serenaded her, and between the musical numbers there was a complimentary address which embarrassed even more than it pleased her, in which a high tribute was paid to Clara Barton, the Florence Nightingale of America. The officers at headquarters had good saddle horses and invited her to ride with them. If there was any form of exercise which she thoroughly enjoyed, it was horseback riding. She procured a riding skirt and sent for her side saddle, which the Arogo in due time brought to her. So far, nothing could have been more delightful. The very satisfaction of it made her uncomfortable. She hoped that God would not hold her accountable for misspent time, and said so in her diary. Lest she should waste her time, she began teaching some Negro boys to read and sought out homesick soldiers who needed comfort. Whenever she heard of any danger or any likelihood of a battle anywhere within reach, she conferred with Colonel Elwell about going there. He was a religious man, and she discussed with him the interposition of divine providence and the apparent indication that she was following a divine call in coming to Hilton Head exactly when she did. But no field opened immediately which called for her ministrations. She felt sometimes that it would be a terrible mistake if she had come so far away from what really was her duty when she wrote, God is great and fearfully just.
Truly, it is a fearful thing to fall into his hands. His ways are past finding out. Still, she could not feel responsible for the fact that no great battle had occurred in her immediate vicinity. Each time the Orogo dropped anchor, she wondered if she ought to return on her. But each time it seemed certain that it was not going to be very long until there was a battle. So she left the matter in God's hands. She wrote, It will be wisely ordered, and I shall do all for the best in the end. God's will, not mine, be done. I am content. How I wish I could always keep in full view the fact and feeling that God orders all things precisely as they should be. All is best as it is. On Sunday, she read Beecher's sermons and sometimes copied religious poetry for Colonel Elwell, who, in addition to his own disability, had tender memories of the death of his little children and many solicitous thoughts for his wife. In some respects, she was having the time of her life. A little group of women, wives of the officers, gathered at the headquarters, and there grew up a kind of social usage. One evening, when a group of officers and officers' wives were gathered together, one of the ladies read a poem in honor of Clara Barton. One day, at General Hunter's headquarters and in his presence, Colonel Elwell presented her with a beautiful pocket Bible on behalf of the officers. If she needed anything to increase her fame, that need was supplied when Mr. Page, correspondent of the New York Tribune, whom she remembered to have met at the Lacey House during the Battle of Fredericksburg, arrived at Hilton Head, and he, who had seen every battle of the Army of the Potomac except Chancellorsville, told the officers how he had heard General Patrick, at the Battle of Fredericksburg, remonstrate with Miss Barton on account of her exposing herself to danger, saying afterward that he expected to see her shot every minute the band of a neighboring regiment came over and serenaded her. Her windows were filled with roses and orange blossoms, and she wrote in her diary, I do not deserve such friends as I find, and how can I deserve them? I fear that in these later years our Heavenly Father is too merciful to me. It would have been delightful if she could only have been sure that she was doing her duty. Surrounded by appreciative friends, bedecked with flowers, serenaded and sung to, and with a saddled horse at her door almost every morning, and at least one officer, if not a dozen, eager for the joy and honor of a ride with her, only two things disturbed her. The first was that she still had no word from Stephen, and the other was the feeling that, unless the Lord ordained a battle in her vicinity before long, she ought to be back with what she called my own army. 
Clara Barton's diary displays utter freedom from cant. She was not given to putting her religious feelings and emotions down on paper, but in this period she gave much larger space to her own reflections than was her custom when more fully occupied. She was feeling in a marked degree the providential aspects of her own life. She was discussing with Christian officers their plans for what Colonel Elwell called his soldier's church. Her religious nature found expression in her diary more adequately than she had usually had time to express. Toward the end of her period of what since has been termed her watchful waiting, she received a letter from a friend, an editor, who felt that the war had gone on quite long enough, and who wished her to use her influence in favor of an immediate peace. Few people wanted peace more than Clara Barton, but her letter in answer to this request shows an insight into the national situation which at that time could hardly have been expected. Hilton Head, South Carolina, June 24th, 1863. T. W. Megan, Esquire. My kind friend, your welcome letter of the 6th has been some days in hand. I did not get frightened. I am a U.S. soldier, you know, and therefore not supposed to be susceptible to fear, and as I am merely a soldier and not a statesman, I shall make no attempt at discussing political points with you. You have spoken openly and frankly, and I have perused your letter and considered your sentiments with interest and, I believe, with sincerity and candor. And while I observe with pain the wide difference of opinion existing between us, I cannot find it in my heart to believe it more than a matter of opinion. I shall not take to myself more of honesty of purpose, faithfulness of zeal, or patriotism than I award to you. I have not, I never shall forget where I first found you. The soldier who has stood in the ranks of my country's armies, and toiled and marched and fought, and fallen and struggled and risen, but to fall again, more worn and exhausted than before, until my weak arm had greater strength than his, and could aid him, and yet made no complaint, and only left the ranks of death when he had no longer strength to stand up in them. Is it for me to rise up in judgment and accuse this man of a want of patriotism? True, he does not see as I see, and works in a channel in which I have no confidence, with which I have no sympathy, and through which I could not go. Still, I must believe that in the end the same results which would gladden my heart would rejoice his. Where you in prospective see peace, glorious coveted peace, and rest for our tired armies, and home and happiness and firesides and friends for our war-worn heroes, I see only the beginning of war. 
If we should make overtures for peace upon any terms, then, I fear, would follow a code of terms to which no civilized nation could submit and present even an honorable existence among nations. God forbid that I should ask the useless exposure of the life of one man, the desolation of one more home. I never for a moment lose sight of the mothers and sisters and white-haired fathers and children moving quietly about and dropping the unseen silent tear in those faraway saddened homes, and I have too often wiped the gathering damp from pale, anxious brows and caught from ashy, quivering lips the last faint whispers of home not to realize the terrible cost of these separations. Nor has morbid sympathy been all. Out amid the smoke and fire and thunder of our guns, with only the murky canopy above and the bloody ground beneath, I have wrought day after day and night after night, my heart well nigh to bursting with conflicting emotions so sorry for the necessity, so glad for the opportunity of ministering with my own hands and strength to the dying wants of the patriot martyrs who fell for their country and mine. If my poor life could have purchased theirs, how cheerfully and quickly would the exchange have been made. More than this I could not do. Deeper than this, I could not feel, and yet, among it all, it has never once been in my heart or on my lips to sue to our enemies for peace. First, they broke it without cause. Last, they will not restore it without shame. True, we may never find peace by fighting. Certainly, we never shall by asking. Independence? They always had their independence till they madly threw it away. If there be a chain on them today, it is of their own riveting. I grant that our government has made mistakes, sore ones too, in some instances, but ours is a human government, and like all human operations, liable to mistakes. Only the machinery and plans of heaven move unerringly, and we short-sighted mortals are, half our time, fain to complain of these. I would that so much of wisdom and foresight and strength and power fall to our rulers, as would show them tomorrow the path to victory and peace but we shall never strengthen their hands or incite their patriotism by deserting and upbraiding them. To my unsophisticated mind, the government of my country is my country, and the people of my country the government of my country, as nearly as a representative system will allow. I have taught me to look upon our government as the band which the people bind around the bundle of sticks to hold it firm, where every patriot hand must grasp the knot the tighter, and our constitution as a symmetrical framework, unsheltered 
and unprotected, around which the people must rally and brace and stay themselves among its inner timbers and lash and bind and nail and rivet themselves to its outer posts, till, in its sheltered strength, it bids defiance to every elemental jar, till the winds cannot rack, the sunshine warp, or the rains rot, and I would to heaven that we so rallied and stood to-day. If our government is too weak to act vigorously and energetically, strengthen it till it can. Then comes the peace we all wait for as kings and prophets awaited, and without which, like them, we seek and never find. Pardon me, my good friend, I had never thought to speak at this length, or indeed any length, upon this strangely knotted subject, so entirely out of my line. My business as stanching blood and feeding fainting men. My post, the open field between the bullet and the hospital. I sometimes discuss the application of a compress or a wisp of hay under a broken limb, but not the bearing and merits of a political movement. I make gruel, not speeches. I write letters home for wounded soldiers, not political addresses. And again, I ask you to pardon not so much what I have said as the fact of my having said anything in relation to a subject of which, upon the very nature of things, I am supposed to be profoundly ignorant. With thanks for favors, and hoping to hear from you and yours as usual, I remain, as ever, yours truly, Clara Barton. I am glad to hear from your wife and mother, and I am most thankful for your cordial invitation to visit you, which I shall, if I have not forfeited your friendship by my plainness of speech, which I pray I may not, accept most joyously and I am even now rejoicing in prospect over my anticipated visit. We are not suffering from heat yet, and I am enjoying such horseback rides as seldom fall to the lot of ladies, I believe. I don't know but I should dare ride with a cavalry rider by and by, if I continue to practice. I could at least take lessons." I have a fine new English leaping saddle on the way to me. I hope you will endeavor to see to it that the rebel privateers shall not get hold of it. I could not sustain both the loss and disappointment, I fear. Love to all. Yours, C.B. While Miss Barton was engaged in these less strenuous occupations, she issued a requisition upon her brother in the quartermaster's department for a flat iron. She said, My clothes are as well washed as at home, and I have a house to iron in if I had the iron. I could be as clean and as sleek as a kitten. Don't you want a smooth sister enough to send her a flat iron? In midsummer, hostilities began in earnest. On July 11th, an assault on Fort Wagner was begun from Morris Island, 
and was followed by a bombardment, Admiral Dahlgren firing shells from his gunboats and General Gilmore opening with his land batteries. Then followed the charge of the black troops under Colonel R.G. Shaw and the long siege in which the Swamp Angel, a 200-pounder parrot, opened fire on Charleston. It was then that Clara Barton found what providential leading had brought her to this place, not from a sheltered retreat, but under actual fire of the guns she ministered to the wounded and the dying. All day long, under a hot sun, she boiled water to wash their wounds, and by night she ministered to them, too ardent to remember her need of sleep. The hot winds drove the sand into her eyes, and weariness and danger were ever present. But she did her work unterrified. She saw Colonel Elwell leading the charge, and he believed that not only himself, but General Voris and Leggett would have died but for her ministrations. Follow me, if you will. Through these eight months, Miss Barton said shortly afterward, I remember eight months of weary siege, scorched by the sun, chilled by the waves, rocked by the tempest, buried in the shifting sands, toiling day after day in the trenches, with the angry fire of five forts hissing through their ranks during every day of those weary months. This was when your brave old regiments stood thundering at the gate of proud, rebellious Charleston. There, frowning defiance, with Moultrie on her left, Johnson on her right, and Wagner in front, she stood hurling fierce death and destruction full in the faces of the brave band who beleaguered her walls. Sumter, the watchdog, that stood before her door, lay maimed and bleeding at her feet, pierced with shot and torn with shell, the tidal waves lapping his wounds. Still, there was danger in his growl and death in his bite. One summer afternoon, our brave little army was drawn up among the island sands and formed in line of march. For hours we watched. Dim twilight came, then the darkness for which they had waited, while the gloom and stillness of death settled down on the gathered forces of Morris Island. Then we pressed forward and watched again. A long line of phosphorescent light streamed and shot along the waves ever surging on our right. I remember so well these islands, when the guns and the gunners, the muskets and musketeers, struggled for place and foothold among the shifting sands. I remember the first swarthy regiments with their unsoldierly tread, and the soldierly bearing and noble brows of the patient philanthropists who volunteered to lead them. 
I can see again the scarlet flow of blood as it rolled over the black limbs beneath my hands and the great heave of the heart before it grew still. And I remember Wagner and its six hundred dead and the great-souled martyr that lay there with them when the charge was ended and the guns were cold. Vividly, she went on to describe the siege of Fort Wagner for Morris Island thus. I saw the bayonets glisten. The swamp angel threw her bursting bombs. The fleet thundered its cannonade and the dark line of blue trailed its way and the dark line of belching walls of Wagner. I saw them on, up, and over the parapets into the jaws of death and heard the clang of the death-dealing sabers as they grappled with the foe. I saw the ambulances laden down with agony and the wounded slowly crawling to me down the tide-washed beach, Voris and Cumminger gasping in their blood. And I heard the deafening clatter of the hoofs of old Sam as Elwell madly galloped up the walls of the fort for orders. I heard the tender wailing fife, the muffled drum, and the last shots as the pitiful little graves grew thick in the shifting sands. Of this experience, General Elwell afterward wrote, I was shot with an Enfield cartridge within one hundred and fifty yards of the fort, and so disabled that I could not go forward. I was in an awful predicament, perfectly exposed to canister from Wagner and shell from Gregg and Sumter in front and the enfilade from James Island. I tried to dig a trench in the sand with my saber, into which I might crawl, but the dry sand would fall back in place about as fast as I could scrape it out with my narrow implement. Failing in this, on all fours I crawled toward the lee of the beach, which was but a few yards off. A charge of canister all around me aroused my reverie to thoughts of action. I abandoned the idea of taking the fort and ordered a retreat of myself, which I undertook to execute in a most unmartial manner on my hands and knees spread out like a turtle. After working my way for a half hour and making perhaps two hundred yards, Two boys of the 62nd Ohio found me and carried me to our first parallel, where had been arranged an extempore hospital. After resting a while, I was put on the horse of my lieutenant colonel, from which he had been shot that night, and started for the lower end of the island, one and a half miles off, where better hospital arrangements had been prepared. Oh, what an awful ride that was. But I got there at last by midnight. I had been on duty for 42 hours without sleep, under the most trying circumstances, and my soul longed for sleep, which I got in this wise. An army blanket was doubled and laid on the soft side of a plank with an overcoat for a pillow 
on which I laid my worn-out body. And such a sleep! I dreamed that I heard the shouts of my boys in victory, that the rebellion was broken, that the union was saved, and that I was at my old home, and that my dear wife was trying to soothe my pain. My sleepy emotions awoke me, and a dear blessed woman was bathing my temples and fanning my fevered face. Clara Barton was there, an angel of mercy, doing all in mortal power to assuage the miseries of the unfortunate soldiers. While she was still under fire, but after the stress of the first assault, she found time to send a little note which enables us to identify with certainty her headquarters. Her work was not done in the shelter of any of the base hospitals in the general region of Charleston. It was with the advance hospital and under fire. End of chapter 16, part 1